0: Today we're going to talk about the changing nature of imperialism. The 19th and the turn of the 20th century are often described as a period when the power of the land-based empires diminished and nationalism became the most important organizing principle for societies around the world. Actually, though, powerful nations in Europe and America pursued overseas empires and expanded into Africa and East Asia until a wave of decolonization after World War II. And even then, I would argue that empires have remained as important as ever in the 20th and the 21st centuries, although the power of these new empires that have been successful have largely been um, economic rather than political. Consider the decline of the empires that we've already become familiar with in earlier chapters in Asia and Europe and the Muslim world. They were territorial empires that used military conquest to impose political control over wide expanses of land adjacent to their ancestral homelands. They existed by providing a degree of civil and economic order in exchange for taxes on the agricultural produce of the populations uh, that they conquered. These empires usually left their citizens more or less alone to speak their own languages, practice their own religions, and to observe their own cultural traditions. Occasionally, as we've seen, they took captives from the conquered lands, like the Janissaries of the Ottoman Empire. The Portuguese and the Spanish, as you'll recall, began establishing the first European overseas empires in the Azores and in the Canary Islands in the late 1400s, extending their overseas imperial project into the Americas after 1492. In the process, the Spanish defeated several existing land-based indigenous empires, such as the Aztecs, the Inca, and the Maya, and they replaced native rulers with their own Spanish viceroys. Then the English, the French, the Dutch, and others soon followed the Iberians into the Caribbean and into North America. All the European colonies in the Americas were controlled by their respective mother countries, sending resources like silver and gold in the case of spain and agricultural products especially sugar uh, back to europe uh, and often required to trade only with the mother country so captive markets and as we will see europeans continue this model of overseas empires in the 1800s as africa and parts of asia come to be dominated by outside imperial powers as well However, the new economic project of neo-imperialism also began to appear early in this period, in the 19th century, especially in the new republics of Latin America. In this case, supposedly sovereign countries that had recently won their independence, as we've seen from the Spanish and the Portuguese empires, were economically dominated by European and U.S. investors. Uh, still providing raw materials for the great powers in exchange for finished industrial goods. Um, As we'll see later, nearly all of these new nations became indebted to European banks uh, and then were faced with the humiliation of gunboat diplomacy in which the U.S. and foreign powers often took over customs houses to force payment of overdue loans. Uh, Before World War I, the decline of land based empires was nearly complete while these new style overseas empires were flourishing. The Ottoman Empire, closest to Europe, declined very slowly during the 19th century um, when it was called the Sick Man of Europe. Um, But it was able to persist until World War I. The Sunni Muslim Ottoman homeland Was present-day Turkey, uh, and it bordered on Orthodox Christian Russia to the north, Catholic Habsburg or the Austro-Hungarian Empire to the west, and the Shiite Iranians who had succeeded the Safavid Empire to the east. The Russians aided the Orthodox Greeks and Serbs and Bulgarians in their successful struggles for independence. Uh, The Ottoman capital, Istanbul, had been Constantinople in the past, the home of the Byzantine Empire, and of Greek Orthodox Christianity before the Ottoman conquest of 1453. So the leaders of Russia Russia wanted to help reestablish Christian rule there. Uh, The Greeks were the first to successfully free themselves from Ottoman rule in the 1820s. They found support not only from Imperial Russia, but also from the British and the French, who were looking for more economic and political influence in the Eastern Mediterranean. And also the struggle for Greek freedom in what had been the birthplace of democracy and the home of classical literature and art really fired the imagination of the artists and writers of the Romantic movement, which was then flourishing in Europe. Uh, For example, English poet Lord Byron actually lost his life serving the Greek cause of independence. By the mid-19th century, disputes between European powers over what would happen to Ottoman territory as the empire seemed to be winding up caused the Crimean War from 1853 to 1856, in which France and Great Britain and the Italian kingdom of Sardinia and the Ottomans all opposed the expanding Russian Empire. The Crimean War was the first major war of the Industrial Age, Uh, in some senses the first modern war. It featured the use of railways, telegraphs, and modern ordnance like rifles and exploding naval artillery. Uh, Disastrous mismatches between traditional old-fashioned military tactics and the realities of modern war became common. Um, such as the incident immortalized in Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Uh, The poem describes a frontal assault by a British light cavalry unit, um, which was armed only with lances and sabers, against an artillery battery dug in on the high ground at the Battle of Balaclava in 1854. Although Tennyson's poem praises the bravery of the cavalrymen who followed orders and charged through the so-called Valley of Death, events like these became symbols of the logistical and tactical mismanagement of this war. The conflict also revealed the weakness of the Russian Empire, which, although it fielded large armies, lagged in both tactics and in technology. In the treaty following the war Russia was forced to remove its naval fleet from the Black Sea temporarily at least. The Ottomans also faced an ongoing dispute with the Egyptians who gained practical independence under the Ottoman appointed governor Muhammad Ali from 1805 to 1848. Ali modernized Egypt in many ways and then his son Muhammad Said granted a land concession in 1854 to a French businessman named Ferdinand de Lesseps, who wanted to dig a canal from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. The building of the Suez Canal, which was completed in 1869, was initially opposed by Great Britain because the British feared that its control by the French would shift the balance of power in Europe. The canal took 11 years to build uh, using forced Egyptian labor. And although the Suez Canal Company was an international operation, uh, its shares didn't really sell that well outside of France and Egypt until 1875 when Said's son Ismail uh, put Egypt's shares up for sale and the British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli bought the shares using an unsecured loan of 4 million pounds from his close personal friend, the Baron de Rothschild, the head of the famous International Bank. Although France still would own more shares, Britain gained a lot of control. They actually sent troops to protect the canal during the Egyptian Civil War in 1882. And then in 1888, the canal was declared a neutral zone under British protection. And using the canal, British steamships were able to avoid sailing around the Horn of Africa and could now reach India in two weeks instead of two months. Inspired by the example of the Greeks and encouraged by the Russians and others, Montenegro, Serbia, and Bulgaria all achieved near-complete independence from the Sultan in Istanbul by 1878. Although they belonged to distinct ethnic and linguistic groups, the majority of people in these territories were Orthodox Christians. Uh, However, as we'll see in the next chapter, these new countries had trouble resolving disputes over borders and political control, since the different peoples lived all over the region in villages and towns uh, that were frequently majority-minority controlled. Nationalism was a motivation for independence, but the national community existed across many different frontiers. How would they be united, and what would they do about the others living within their own new countries? When the Russian Empire's ambitions were thwarted in the Crimean War, Russians were forced to confront their military incompetence and to some degree, their social backwardness, serfdom still tied peasants and their families to the land. And although they weren't technically slaves, serfs were included in any property transaction among the landed gentry. The Tsar, Alexander II, declared an end to serfdom in 1861, shortly, shortly before President Lincoln's 1863 Emancipation Proclamation during the US Civil War. Both countries were among the last in their respective regions to formerly end forced labor obligations. And unfortunately, like the newly freed people in the US, the liberty of many former Russian serfs existed more on paper than in reality. Russian industries expanded with investment from Western Europe. Factories and rail networks soon appeared Uh, especially in the European part of Russia to the west. Uh, However, the slowness of political and social change led to frustration among potential reformers, uh, who instead turned to revolutionary action, oftentimes led by anarchists. Anarchism is similar to socialism in its concept of class struggle, But anarchists believe that all forms of top-down control, police, government, and even organized religion, should be immediately eliminated, allowing for the natural cooperativeness of humanity to thrive in smaller consensus-based communities. Russian anarchists succeeded in assassinating the reformist Tsar, Alexander II, in 1881, ironically, on the day he gave approval for a limited form of parliamentary government. Uh, His son, Alexander III, then rejected this political reform and he, in turn, was also murdered by anarchists in 1894. And his son, Nicholas II, just wasn't open to any more potential checks on his absolute power in the face of this type of violence. Dozens of ethnic and religious groups lived in the territories of the Russian Empire, um, and attempts at Russifying them were inconclusive at best, really kind of failed. Uh, The Poles, the Finns, the Lithuanians, the Ukrainians, the Romanians, um, among many different um, other Muslim ethnicities as well, uh, all chafed under this autocratic control of the czars and desired independence. Uh, Some of them, when that didn't come, simply immigrated, uh, left Russia and came to places like the United States for better economic opportunities. Uh, Jewish Russians, many of whom lived in a territory called the Pale, which was taken from Poland in the 1790s, were blamed indiscriminately for the misfortunes of the Russian people, like the deaths of babies or cattle and they were attacked in violent pogroms. Um, Jews from these Russian and Eastern European areas also often chose a new life in the the US rather than continue to face this discrimination and persecution. Uh, Later pogroms like the one in Odessa in 1905, in which hundreds of Jews lost their lives, received international attention and condemnation, and were presented as proof of Tsarist Russia's continuing backwardness. In the late 19th century, the Tsarist autocracy actively encouraged anti-Semitism, the idea that the Jews were the cause of political and economic and social problems, and that something needed to be done uh, to occasionally put them in their place in the form of violent pogroms. Uh, Although Jews had lived in the region for centuries, they were always considered to be the other, and the society restricted their ability to own land and to uh, take part in certain professions. Local and national leaders would blame the Jews for every assassination, every political upheaval, and even for economic downturns in order to unite uh, opposition groups with the goals of the Tsars. And we'll see how this type of scapegoating becomes uh, an ongoing problem in the 20th century. Attacks on Jewish communities and neighborhoods began occurring with alarming frequency from the 1880s until the eve of World War I. The Habsburg dynasty um, had ruled Austria and its territories since the late 1200s and through a series of strategic marriages The family had also grown to control the Spanish Empire, as we've seen in the 1500s and the 1600s, including the Spanish-American colonies. Uh, The Spanish line died out uh, in 1700 or so, but the Austrian house of Habsburg would continue to reign until 1918. At the end of the Napoleonic period, the Habsburg Empire dominated southeastern Europe. Uh, up to the frontiers of the Ottoman and Russian empires. Um, While the Tsars felt a special kinship with the Orthodox Christians under the Ottoman-Turkish rule, uh, the Greeks, the Serbians, and the Bulgarians, the Habsburg monarchs supported the Catholics in the Ottoman region, like the Croats. Until 1815, the Habsburgs had been the Holy Roman emperors. During the Protestant Reformation, they had fought to maintain Catholicism as the official religion of their realm. Although they were united by religion, the Habsburg Empire was divided by a growing sense of nationality. German-speaking Austrian Habsburg emperors ruled over Hungarians, Czechs, Ukrainians, Poles, Slovaks, Romanians, Jews, Slovenes, Croats, Serbs, and Albanians. By the middle of the 19th century, Many of these peoples wanted their own nations. The rebellions and revolutions of 1848 came close to breaking up the Habsburg territories in a wave of nationalist and also socialist fervor, as we've seen. Uh, The revolutionaries didn't achieve all of their goals, uh, but they did manage to abolish abolish serfdom, and several regions gained a greater degree of autonomy. Uh, And also, the Emperor Ferdinand I abdicated in favor of his nephew, Franz Josef. The unification of Italy in the 1860s and then of Germany in 1870 allowed the Hungarians, who then became the most numerous minority in the realm, to achieve nearly complete independence. In 1867, the emperor then agreed to establish a dual monarchy, which became the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Administration was divided between Austrian and Hungarian parliaments, while the Austrian emperor managed foreign policy. This compromise really just spread out the nationalist problem uh, for two kings instead of one. The Romanians demanded more autonomy from the Hungarian administration in Budapest, while the Czechs asked for the same from the Austrian government in Vienna. A united Germany, which was really achieved in about 1870, brought together an agricultural East with an industrialized West, creating a brand new great power in Europe that wanted to rival Great Britain and France. The new nation actually called itself the German Empire, the Deutsche Reich. And so its ambition to take the place that it believed it deserved at the table of imperial powers began to upset the post-Napoleonic European balance of the Congress of Vienna and eventually became the cause of two 20th century world wars. Otto von Bismarck, who became prime minister of the Kingdom of Prussia in 1862, was really the main architect of this German empire. Although he was not a member of the group of young Germans who had dreamed of unification during the revolutions of 1848, Bismarck gradually did come to the conclusion that in order to counter the growing power of Austria-Hungary, which was overextending itself in Italy and in the Balkans, Prussia had to take the initiative and had to gather the rest of the German states together under the Prussian king. Bismarck used war As a way to unite these German principalities. First, in 1864, he started a brief war with Denmark that brought together most of the northern German states as allies of Prussia. And then a war with Austria in 1866 solidified these states in a confederation with the Prussian king Wilhelm I. While at the same time, the newly unified Italy took advantage of a weakened Austria to claim Italian-speaking Habsburg territories in the Alps. And then to bring the mostly Catholic southern German states led by Bavaria into this union, Bismarck deliberately offended Napoleon III of France, uh, making territorial promises during the Austrian war that he had no intention of keeping uh, and doing some other things that angered the French emperor. Um, Napoleon III was the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, He had been president of France briefly before declaring himself emperor. And he went to war with Prussia in 1870, um, counting on the neutrality of the other German states and counting on Austrian help, neither of which actually turned out to happen. Prussia had one of the best-trained armies in Europe at this time, and it surprised the French with its rapid advance. Within weeks, the Prussians had actually captured Napoleon III himself and forced him to surrender. A leaderless France couldn't halt a united German advance to the capital, and the capital itself, Paris, was actually overtaken by a socialist inspired commune, the Paris Commune. Uh, The French agreed to territorial losses uh, and formed a third republic to replace Napoleon III. So social chaos in France. Uh, In early 1871, Bismarck initiated a gathering of the German princes at the French Royal Palace in Versailles, outside of Paris, to celebrate the unification of this national state with the Prussian King Wilhelm I as emperor. Unlike the 13 American colonies that became the United States, Canada achieved its independence from Britain much more slowly and, of course, without a revolution. Although the French-speaking people in Quebec and the British in Ontario could easily have been at each other's throats, shared anxiety over an invasion from the United States, which was actually tried unsuccessfully in 1775 and 1812, held them together in a fragile alliance. After two more incursions by American forces in the 1830s, the British North America Act of 1867, created the Dominion of Canada by combining Quebec, Nova Scotia, Ontario, and New Brunswick. John A. MacDonald became the nation's first prime minister in 1867, uh, and then he negotiated the purchase of the Northwest Territories from the Hudson Bay Company in 1869 and then he convinced Manitoba and Prince Edward Island and British Columbia to join the Dominion. MacDonald knew that like the US, Canada's Eastern and Western coastal regions needed a transcontinental railroad to tie them together. The Canadian Pacific Railroad was completed in 1885. The Canadian Pacific operates mostly just north of the border, although several lines connect US cities such as Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Detroit, and Chicago with the Canadian line. Even today, 90% of Canada's 36 million people live within 100 miles of the US-Canada border. The British had also claimed Australia, which they settled in the late 18th century with convicts. The crimes that these convicts had been uh, charged with were mostly petty or were related to debt. Some of them were political, um, such as the Irish condemned for protesting English rule. Uh, New Zealand was settled in the early 19th century by a private company uh, following the model that had been established during colonization of some of the 13 American colonies. Uh, In both cases, Native peoples lost land in a very similar manner to the way they had in British North America. In Australia, the continent, the huge size of the continent, allowed for the Aborigines to retreat into the interior uh, until environmental and other factors brought them into increasing contact with the settlers and their descendants. Uh, In New Zealand, relations between the native Maori and the settlers followed a pattern similar to that of the Western United States. Treaties would be made and they would be broken and wars would be fought, which would be won by the settlers, who then took more land. Uh, However, more recently, respect and celebration of Maori rights and culture have begun to become a part of uh, New Zealand culture and identity. India was the most important colony for the British determining much of its international diplomacy diplomacy, until well after World War II. Uh, When the British East India Company began its conquest of the subcontinent in the 1700s, the Mughal Empire was beginning to enter a long period of slow decline after its peak in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, The company took advantage of the empire's weakness and expanded its trading activities, and then slowly took over the regional principalities that were splitting off from Mughal control. By the 1700s, Indian tea had become an important part of the British diet and the British economy, uh, even for their colonists in North America, who, as you may recall, dumped Indian tea into Boston Harbor in protest against taxes in 1773. By the middle of the 19th century, the company controlled most of mainland India, Pakistan, Burma, and Bangladesh, as well as Sri Lanka. Uh, The company shifted its policy away from merely trading and began reorganizing the Indian economy, clearing forests, and establishing widespread cultivation of tea, coffee, cotton, and opium for use in China. By the time The crown took over direct control of the colony from the East India Company in 1858 after an uprising called the Sepoy Mutiny. India was no longer a powerful economic force, no longer an exporter of manufactured textiles, but instead was a producer of agricultural products and raw materials for Britain's growing industrial economy. The British administration in India, however, also provided a model for other European imperialists. Uh, The little island of England couldn't obviously direct all of the affairs of their huge Indian possession. So they trained locals to help them in governing themselves. And this process began under the East India Company uh, with the formation of an entire native army and police force commanded by British officers, Um, but it soon included educated local administrators who spoke English and understood and applied imperial laws and edicts. By the 1850s, the British had founded their first schools to instruct the local Indian elite in English, engineering, science, and British imperial law. This model was so effective in India that Indian immigrants, then often followed the British to their new colonies in Africa, where Indians operated the railways and the postal service and Indian carpenters and bricklayers constructed government offices and private homes for the new colonial and commercial elites. Indian shopkeepers played an enormous role in the local economies of these new colonies well into the 20th century. Indians even migrated to Great Britain's territories in the Caribbean, As indentured servants. In Guyana, for example, in northern South America, over 40% of the population is of India, Indian descent. The story of Mahatma Gandhi, who later would help lead India into independence, is an example of this native tradition of training to manage the empire. After an education in a British school in India, Gandhi went to London and studied law. On graduating, he went to South Africa to serve the British Empire as a lawyer for 25 years before he began his new career advocating for Indian independence. Uh, And this also was a pattern that was duplicated in other European empires. Eventually, educated local elites and professionals would begin to seek greater autonomy, if not outright independence, since it was them who were already administering the colonies for the mother country. Ho Chi Minh, who would fight with and then against U.S. forces for the independence of Vietnam, had actually applied for admission to the French Academy at Marseille when he was 21 that trained imperial administrators. If the school had accepted him rather than rejecting him, history might have turned out quite differently. Some of the slave owners among the founders of the United States had believed that slavery would not be a permanent institution in the new country. At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, they had agreed to abolish the slave trade in the U.S. starting in 1808, and many seemed to have expected that slavery would gradually disappear after that. Even the slave owner, Thomas Jefferson, idealized not the southern planter, but the independent, self-sufficient yeoman farmer as the hope of American democracy. However, Eli Whitney's invention of the cotton gin gave new life to the institution of slavery. Issues such as the infamous three-fifths compromise in the U.S. Constitution, in which enslaved people counted as three-fifths of a person, for purposes of taxation and representation, uh, just became more divisive rather than gradually disappearing. And even in the free North, the United States was generally considered to be a white man's country. Uh, Free men of African descent were only allowed to vote in a handful of New England states by 1860 and were subject to discrimination in jobs and housing and movement everywhere. In the U.S. Finally, although many whites opposed the extension of slavery into the western territories and even advocated for abolition, many also supported schemes for sending all the freed blacks back to Africa. Liberia on the west coast of Africa was founded by white abolitionists and by freed slaves from the United States in 1820. Uh, in Congressly, they named their capital Monrovia for the U.S. president at the time, James Monroe, uh, in spite of the fact that he, too, was a slaveholder. Whitney's invention caused an explosion of cotton planting, which led not only to an expansion of slavery, but to a greater hunger for new land. As had happened in the Thirteen Colonies, white-led settlement came at the expense of Native Americans. The five so-called civilized tribes of the South, the Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and the Seminole, uh, were Indians who had embraced Christianity and also Anglo-American institutions. They established their own farms and even plantations. Uh, They published a bilingual newspaper. They governed themselves in a bicameral legislature. Many even owned African slaves. Nevertheless, They were cast out by the Southern states in the Indian Removal Act of 1830. They were forced to leave their ancestral lands and relocate into Oklahoma, west of the Mississippi. The Trail of Tears for these displaced people was aptly named. Thousands died in the forced march across the South, and then during their settlement in a completely different and not particularly hospitable environment. Um, Despite treaties, similar processes would also happen in the Louisiana Territory and beyond. The territories of independent Mexico north of the Rio Grande River had only really been lightly settled by the Spanish during the colonial period. Uh, Santa Fe was established nearly 100 years after the Spanish conquest of the Aztecs. Uh, And even the religious missions in California only appeared in the 1700s. Uh, The new Mexican government, after independence, allowed for Anglo settlement uh, from the United States into Texas, which bordered the new state uh, of Louisiana as a way to begin populating this region. While the Mexican government allowed the Tejanos a fair degree of self-government, they did insist that Mexican laws be obeyed, including the law against keeping slaves. The new settlers rebelled and achieved their independence after a brief war in 1836, and immediately brought enslaved people in to work on their new cotton plantations. Although Mexico's treaty with this newly independent Texas included a pledge that the new republic would not try to become a state in the United States, Texas did join the Union in 1845 after annexation, and a war immediately ensued. Not only did the U.S. government send troops south to defend Texas, they sent enough to defeat Mexico decisively. Many Americans at this time argued and believed that the U.S. had what they called a manifest destiny that required that it become a continental nation. The U.S. eventually occupied Mexico City in 1848 and conquered all of the territory to the Pacific Ocean. In defeat, the Mexicans were forced to sign the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and cede all of their territory north of the Rio Grande River. Mexico lost over half its land area and the United States acquired California Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and part of Wyoming. At the same time, the US government negotiated a treaty with Great Britain to establish a northern border in the disputed Oregon territory. So by 1849, the United States had basically completed its advance across the continent. The Civil War in the United States, like the Crimean War, a few years earlier is thought of as one of the first modern wars that brought new technology onto the battlefield. Uh, Railroads and steamships made troop transportation quicker and more efficient uh, while the electric telegraph not only improved military communication but it also made war news immediately available to the newspaper reading public in the U.S. and abroad. The industrialized northern states benefited the most from these new technologies uh, since they could produce more war material and they had better transportation networks to get troops and supplies to the front more quickly than the South did. The South lagged in both industry and the railroads at this time. Southern hopes of maintaining an independent Confederacy depended a lot on support from Europe. Southern cotton supplied the textile mills of Great Britain and France, which enriched both of those countries. So Confederate planters expected these business ties to influence political decisions. Great Britain hesitated to recognize the independence of the Confederacy um, and in the end declined when the Union began racking up victories beginning around 1863. At the same time, the Emperor Napoleon III this is before he was forced by the Germans to uh, resign, Um, the nephew of the man who had sold Louisiana to Jefferson pursued an imperial scheme to create a pro-French monarchy in Mexico that would support the Confederates. Napoleon's plan failed when Mexican troops unexpectedly defeated the French army at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862. Although Maximilian, the brother of the emperor, uh, would briefly rule Mexico, the project was a disaster for the French. After the Union victory in the U.S., French troops left Mexico, and Maximilian was abandoned and left to be executed by a firing squad in 1867, uh, as Mexican liberals, led by Benito Juarez, re-established Mexico's independence. The date of the Battle of Puebla is still celebrated as Cinco de Mayo by Mexican Americans throughout the U.S. Now, finally, because some U.S. publishers are interested in selling their textbooks to school boards in the former Confederate states, they often soft pedal the Civil War in a way that creates a lot of confusion. So let's be very clear, it is absurd To claim that supporting slavery was legitimately based on the so called sanctity of private property rights, which were espoused by the founding fathers as part of their Enlightenment values. It's not reasonable to argue that property is a human right, but only for some humans, and that other humans can be property rather than having these property rights. Um, Furthermore, the US Civil War was about slavery, not about states' rights. Although the Confederacy made this claim after they lost, when they seceded and while they thought they were winning, the South was very clear in stating that it was leaving the Union to preserve the institution of slavery. Now, as I described in chapter four, Latin America achieved its independence from Spain and Portugal in the first decades of the 1800s during that Napoleonic period. Great Britain was particularly interested in an independent Latin America as a source of markets for its industrial products. Uh, While English and Irish mercenaries available to work after the Napoleonic Wars often joined the fight for freedom alongside people like Bolivar and others in Latin America. Uh, The Spanish and the Portuguese became the first Europeans to begin losing their overseas empires nearly 150 years before the British and the French and others would go through this same process, which we'll see later. Um, The new countries of Latin America suffered through a long period as they struggled to establish stable governments and working economies, uh, which depending on the country could include civil wars, dictatorships, social reforms, political reforms, and economic dependence, on a handful of exports and their international price fluctuations. So these new countries were also the first to experience neo-imperialism, this new imperialism that I've been talking about that technically respects national sovereignty, but in reality forces governments and people to bend to foreign influence. In the 1820s and the 1830s, The new governments of Latin America quickly became indebted to British banks, which often had arranged large loans for them in anticipation that their independence would bring rapid economic development, just as it had in the United States. Meanwhile, local artisans couldn't compete with British textiles and other manufactured goods that flooded into the markets of these new republics many countries became dependent on the international price of a handful or sometimes even a single export material, such as copper or nitrates in chile coffee in brazil beef and grain in argentina sugar in cuba and bananas throughout central america british investors in latin america were followed by french and u.s businesses and this neo-imperialism continues for much of Latin America well into the 21st century, while the model was extended, as we'll see, to new countries formed in Africa and Asia following the decline, further decline of these European empires after World War II. After the Latin American independence wars of 1820s, 1830s, the Spanish crown still did maintain control over some of its possessions, Cuba and Puerto Rico in the Caribbean and the Philippine Islands in the Pacific. With the end of slavery, independence inspired uh, Cubans, including a few from the former planter class. Jose Martí, a Cuban intellectual and poet, organized funds and support in the United States for a new push to liberate his homeland from the Spanish. And a new rebellion began in 1895. Martí died in his first battle, but the independence army continued with guerrilla tactics in their fight against the Spanish. Uh, The Spanish, in response, set up concentration camps uh, and imprisoned non-combatants, assuming that anyone who didn't submit was an independence sympathizer. Thousands of people died in terrible conditions in these camps and major newspapers in the US soon engaged in sensationalist reporting of Spain's crimes in Cuba in order to increase their circulation. Uh, Media magnates like William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer used what became known as yellow journalism to agitate for war. Yellow journalism is named after a popular cartoon character, the Yellow Kid. Uh, It's a technique of using inflammatory headlines backed by little or no factual reporting to stir up public emotion. It's a combination of clickbait and fake news that we're all familiar with on the internet today. It's ironic that Pulitzer is now best known for the prize for journalistic excellence that he established in his will. At the beginning of 1898, uh, public opinion in the U.S. was divided over entering a Cuban war for independence. Still, The McKinley administration was alarmed enough about the instability on the island that it sent the battleship Maine to Havana in order to protect U.S. interests. And there were plenty of U.S. interests. U.S. investors and buyers controlled the sugar industry. uh, And they built and owned much of the communications and transportation infrastructure. And of course, U.S. smokers were the main consumers of Cuban cigars. The Maine mysteriously blew up in Havana Harbor, killing dozens of U.S. soldiers. The Spanish were immediately blamed by this sensationalist U.S. press, Uh, although decades later, investigations would show that the explosion had come from the inside and had been an accident. Um, The munitions storeroom was actually located right next to the engine room. President McKinley asked the U.S. Congress, and Congress granted a declaration of war on Spain. Uh, The conflict quickly eliminated the Spanish Empire's control of Cuba and Puerto Rico. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who had been Secretary of Navy at the time, resigned to form his own army unit uh, that he called the Rough Riders so that he would not miss out on the opportunity to fight in the splendid little war in Cuba. Uh, However, black troops from the regular army had to save him and his men at the Battle of San Juan Hill. Meanwhile, the U.S. annexed Puerto Rico and Guam, which are still U.S. territories, as well as the Philippines. Uh, Filipinos were already fighting a war for their own independence, uh, which had begun in 1892, so they objected to becoming a possession of the United States. Emilio Aguinaldo, the Filipino leader, had been promised by the U.S. that the United States would recognize the independence of the new Philippine Republic. But when the time came, President McKinley issued what he called a proclamation of benevolent assimilation. The Filipinos, of course, just replaced Spain with America in their efforts to get free. Rudyard Kipling's famous 1899 poem, The White Man's Burden, was actually written in support of the United States' effort to subdue these ungrateful brown people in the Philippines. That's what the poem is about. You'll have a chance to uh, read it in the primary source collection. Uh, The United States Navy destroyed the city of Eolio to suppress the independence movement and Aguinaldo called for a strategy of guerrilla warfare. 4,200 American soldiers were killed in the conflict. about 250,000 Filipino soldiers and civilians. In 1901, Aguinaldo was captured and forced to surrender. Resistance actually continued until 1913 because the Philippines are an archipelago of thousands of islands. But by 1902, most of the guerrillas had been pushed away from the major cities. The Philippines finally achieved their independence in 1946 after World War II, which also included wartime occupation by Imperial Japan. The Spanish-American War also highlighted the military importance of building a canal through Panama. The US Pacific Fleet, after defeating the Spanish in the Philippines, had to sail all the way around South America to engage Spain in the Caribbean. The California Gold Rush had brought the Colombian province of Panama to the attention of investors. Uh, Steamships from the East Coast ports of America brought passengers to Panama. And then um, after 1855, they could take a U.S. built and U.S. owned railway across the territory to the Pacific side, get onto another steamer for the trip to California, instead of having to go all the way around the bottom of South America. In 1902, the U.S. government bought the French Canal Company's land for 40 Although the French project had managed to do some of the most difficult digging, they had abandoned the project several years earlier. Ferdinand de Lesseps had planned a sea level canal like the Suez in Egypt, but the hilly topography of Panama made locks more practical, while the tropical jungles meant malaria for canal workers. Colombia was ending yet another civil war in 1902. Uh, And although its government signed a treaty handing over a canal zone and other rights to the US, uh, the Colombian Senate hesitated to approve the the agreement. Uh, Panamanians were upset with the delay and it didn't take much for the US to help engineer an independence revolution for Panama. Uh, And they sent a naval destroyer to discourage the Colombian government from sending troops to put it down. Almost immediately, the new government of Panama signed the Canal Zone over to the U.S. The canal opened in uh, 1914 was an impressive engineering feat. It shortened the trip for cargo between the oceans. Um, And the U.S. Medical Service, with the help of Cuban researchers, also made the connection between mosquitoes and malaria and were able to stop the spread of both while building the canal. The U.S. withdrew from the canal zone and the canal became a Panamanian property on December 31st, 1999. Uh, and then the canal was expanded in 2016 to accommodate Panamax container ships. And currently about 13,000 ships pass through the canal annually carrying over 330 million tons of cargo. Bananas began as a major Central American industry when a Cape Cod sea captain named Lorenzo Dow Baker brought 160 bunches from Jamaica in 1870 and resold them in Jersey City. The fruit quickly caught on with U.S. consumers. And in 1873, miner C. Keith began planting banana trees alongside his railroad in Costa Rica. Uh, The government had defaulted on some payments that it owed to Keith, but instead gave him 800,000 acres of tax-free land all along the rail line. And then when the railroad failed to pay for itself in the 1890s, Keith decided to concentrate on the bananas. He merged with Baker's Boston Fruit Company, which had begun growing bananas on about 10,000 acres in Jamaica. And the result was the United Fruit Company, established in 1899. The United Fruit Company quickly bought up several competitors and gained control of 80% of all the bananas reaching the US. In 1901, American author O. Henry coined the term Banana Republic in his book, Cabbages and Kings. Um, And this book was inspired by a visit to Honduras in 1897. His point was that companies like the United Fruit Company didn't limit themselves to growing and shipping bananas. In 1900, the company began a travel service to Central America on its steamers and produced an illustrated guide called the Golden Caribbean. In 1901, The government of Guatemala contracted with the United Fruit Company to run the nation's postal service. In 1913, the United Fruit Company created the Tropical Radio and Telegraph Company. And by 1930, the United Fruit Company was worth over $200 million and was the largest employer in Central America. The company owned over 3.5 million acres of land, making it the largest landowner in Guatemala. In 1928, when a strike at United Fruit Company plantations in Colombia was portrayed by the company as a potential communist insurrection, the US Marines threatened to invade Colombia if the Colombian government didn't defend the United Fruit Company. So Colombian soldiers massacred workers striking for an eight-hour day and for a six-day work week. Hundreds were killed, including dozens gathered in the town plaza in support of the strike. This 1928 banana massacre was described by Gabriel Garcia Marquez in his 1967 novel 100 Years of Solitude. The European scramble for Africa at the end of the 19th century was motivated by international rivalry and by the fact that Africa south of the Sahara remained the last part of the world quote-unquote unexplored by Europeans. South Asia was part of the British Empire, East Asia and Oceania had been divvied up, and the Americans were either already colonized or had established republics whose existence was accepted by Europeans and by the U.S. Uh, rivalries among the Europeans were based mostly on a desire to create captive consumer markets for their manufacturers and to secure those resources like copper and tin and cotton and rubber and palm oil and tea and cocoa and coffee, on which these industries depended. To bring order to the scramble, the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck in 1884 organized a conference to identify and delineate the claims. The Berlin Conference was attended by representatives from 13 European powers and from the United States. Uh, No African countries were represented at all, except for some Ottoman provinces along the Mediterranean. Administrative boundaries deliberately were drawn to cut across existing political and ethnic boundaries. In some cases, forcing warring groups to live and work together. In other cases, dividing tribes from their allies. This weakened resistance in the short run, but as we'll see later, it became a source of civil unrest, separatist movements, and boundary disputes among the new African countries that formed after colonization in the 1950s and 1960s. Along with the usual proposal of civilizing the non-European peoples of their empires, the imperialists also claimed that they were committed to ending the internal slave trade in Africa. However, European treatment of African workers often included whipping, torture, and other punishments alongside debt peonage, where indebted people were basically treated like slaves. It was standard practice in the so-called Congo Free State, which was really the personal fiefdom of King Leopold of Belgium, to cut off the hands of African workers, even children, who didn't meet their rubber collection quotas. And the international outcry when photographs of these maimed children got out uh, forced the Belgium government to finally take over Leopold's holdings in 1908 after 30 years of this treatment. South Africa was a special case in European imperialism. The Dutch had made it into a settler colony beginning in the mid-1600s rather than merely establishing a trading post there. They had been interested in forming a community of farmers in South Africa that could supply the fleets rounding the Cape of Good Hope on their way to the East Indies. Thousands of Dutch and other Europeans were attracted by the relatively cooler climate of Southern Africa and the availability of rich farmlands. And like the British in the United States, Um, They were a little bit more interested in removing the natives than they were in subjugating them. Uh, The British took control of the territory from the Dutch during the Napoleonic period. In the 1830s, the British imperial government began abolishing slavery and requiring English in schools and in business and legal transactions. And in reaction to that, many Dutch settlers moved farther inland in what they called the Great Trek. Uh, taking more land from the natives and establishing two new republics, Transvaal and the Orange Free State. At the same time, the descendants of um, unions between Europeans and Africans and natives of the Dutch East Indies brought in as laborers, who were all sort of collectively known as colored. Uh, Occasionally, uh, these people would establish their own autonomous zones. The British also faced the Zulus, who led by their king, Shaka Zulu, and his very well-trained army, had established an independent kingdom in Eastern South Africa in the 1820s. When uh, local British commanders decided to attack what they felt was a growing military threat from the Zulus in 1879, the Imperial regiments were defeated by Zulu spearmen in a series of major battles. A second invasion of Zululand, however, was successful, uh, but the British continued to recognize Zulu autonomy in much of their territory. Cecil John Rhodes is now probably best remembered for the scholarship that he endowed in his will in 1902, which funds study at Oxford University for US college graduates. Uh, Rhodes scholars include Bill Clinton, Rachel Maddow, Bobby Jindal, and Chris Christopherson. Uh, Rhodes scholarships do a lot for the memory of Cecil Rhodes, just as the Nobel Prize does a lot for the memory of Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, whose company operated over 90 munitions factories during his lifetime. Rhodes endowed the scholarship at Oxford because the British University was his alma mater, the son of a well-connected Anglican minister, Rhodes had joined his brother in 1871 in South Africa at age 18 to recuperate from tuberculosis. Uh, He dabbled a little bit in farming, and then with financing from the Rothschild Bank that had helped Britain buy the Suez Canal, he began buying diamond mines. Rhodes returned to England to attend Oxford, uh, but he left after just a year. To resume his diamond business, uh, eventually founding the De Beers company in 1888. Uh, a year later, Rhodes controlled 90 percent of the world's diamond production. De Beers currently operates in 35 countries and managed to hold on to its monopoly until the start of the 21st century. The company still sells about 35 percent of the world's diamonds. During his year at Oxford, Rhodes absorbed the philosophy of imperialism. He attended a lecture uh, by Professor John Ruskin that became a famous justification for empire called imperial duty. Ruling the world, Ruskin said, is a destiny now possible to us, the highest ever set before a nation to be accepted or refused. Rhodes took this idea back to Africa with him, uh, having declared We are the finest race in the world, and the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. As I've noted already, the British were not the only people who believed themselves to be superior to the people that they conquered. Uh, Europeans and Americans also believed that it was their job to help civilize the rest of the world. The white man's burden and the civilizing mission of imperialism were big themes, and their echoes are still with us today. We still call countries in what was once described as the third world, we still call them developing nations, as if the goal of all the nations of the world is to become like Europe and the United States, and we have the responsibility to help them do just that. In reality, The superiority of the British and the French and the Americans over people of less developed nations was usually mostly in military technology. Britain demonstrated the effectiveness of its armored steamships during the Opium Wars. They sailed up the Yangtze River and threatened both the Grand Canal and Beijing, forcing the Chinese to surrender and, and to agree to the unequal treaties. In the 1870s, the British began using Gatling hand crank machine guns against the Zulu in Africa and the Bedouin in the Middle East. Uh, the Royal Navy used them against Egyptians in the 1882 um, Civil War in Egypt. Then the U.S. used them to support American troops during that Battle of San Juan Hill when Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders made their famous charge. Later, the British switched to the Maxim gun, which was the first recoil-operated machine gun, and was able to fire uh, 600 rounds per minute. They used it in the 1890s to conquer the kingdom that was then called Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Uh, Cecil Rhodes, who was by this time the prime minister of the Cape Colony, had about 750 of what he called South Africa Company police, that he sent against 80,000 tribal spearmen and 20,000 riflemen of the Zulus. But the police had Maxim guns. In one battle, the British used their Maxim guns to fight off 5,000 attacking Zulu warriors. In 1898, the British were able to kill 20,000 Sudanese warriors with four Maxim guns in a few hours without taking many casualties. This was the beginning of a period of asymmetrical warfare based on technology, which continues to the present and which forces people who can't stand up to the imperialists' superior weapons to find other ways to resist. In addition to weapons and transportation, the Europeans and the Americans had the added advantage of communications. Telegraphs, using Morse code had become widespread in the US and Britain and Europe during the 1850s. But undersea cables were required to connect the colonies. Uh, Before telegraphy, a letter from London took about two weeks to reach New York or to reach Alexandria, Egypt. Took about a month to reach Bombay on the west coast of India. Took six weeks to reach Singapore or Calcutta on the east side of India two months to get to Shanghai, and 10 weeks to arrive in Sydney, Australia. And then it would take just as much time for the answer to get back to England. A successful undersea cable between Britain and the U.S. was completed in 1866. Britain and India were connected in 1870. Australia was linked to the system in 1872. And a trans-Pacific cable was finally completed in 1903 linking the U.S. with Hawaii, Guam, and the Philippines. Although telegraphy had been pioneered by Americans like Samuel Morse, the British dominated undersea cable. At the end of the 19th century, Britain owned 24 of the world's 30 cable-laying ships, and the British owned and operated two-thirds of the world's cable. During World War I, British telegraph communications were almost completely uninterrupted, while Britain was very successful cutting German cables, forcing the Germans to rely on wireless or radio transmissions that were much easier to listen to and decipher. Europeans treated their military success over colonized people as proof of their cultural superiority. They developed theories of scientific racism and social Darwinism to justify uh, their choices to treat conquered peoples as less than fully human. They also took advantage of previous African customs and tribal animosities that I've already mentioned to divide the conquered Africans. Uh, And they often created new ones based on their own prejudices. In Rwanda, the Belgians had noted the existence of separate castes that lived side by side for generations under the same rule. Um, But the Belgians decided to put the cattle-raising Tutsis, who made up about 10% of the population, uh, over the Hutu farmers, who were the majority. Um, Because of more access to animal protein, the Tutsis seemed taller and better looking to the Europeans, and so the Belgians deemed them to be naturally superior to the Hutus. After independence, the Hutu majority took control and it subjected the Tutsis to periodic pogroms. In 1994, nearly a million Tutsis were killed by their neighbors in a government-orchestrated genocide until a mostly Tutsi-led guerrilla insurgency took over the government. Both groups speak the same language and the distinctions fostered by the Belgians have now been officially disavowed. Uh, However, in the aftermath, up to 2 million Hutu refugees left Rwanda for the Congo, exacerbating the humanitarian crisis and destabilizing Central Africa even further. Oil was first drilled by a Russian engineer on the Apsharon Peninsula on the west side of the Caspian Sea, near Baku, Azerbaijan, in 1848. Edwin Drake's famous well in Titusville, Pennsylvania, was drilled 11 years later in 1859. Although Russian fields and refineries in Azerbaijan were the industry pioneers, the U.S. took an early lead, and by 1880, the Bradford Field in Pennsylvania controlled and produced 77% of the world's oil supply. But by the end of the 19th century, the Russian Empire had taken back the lead in production. Uh, By the first decade of the 20th century, commercial oil production was also underway in Sumatra, Persia, Peru, Venezuela, and Mexico, as well as in Texas, California, and Ohio in the US. In the early 20th century, the corporations dominating the global oil business were Standard Oil, later Exxon Mobil, established 1870, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, now called British Petroleum, established in 1909, and Royal Dutch Shell, established in 1907. Oil initially played a fairly simple role in the Industrial Revolution as a machine lubricant. However, by the late 19th century, internal combustion engines, which rely on firing cylinders using gas or heavy oil, diesel, as fuel, are quickly becoming popular, replacing steam power for transportation. Uh, Diesel-fired ship and train engines, for example, carry less fuel than is needed for coal-fired steam engines, Uh, while the gasoline-powered automobile, of course, exploded and became commonplace in the second decade of the 20th century. As oil became increasingly central to powering both industry and transportation, oil companies became more powerful and were more easily able to project their economic influence, and shaped the politics of the countries that they operated in. This became especially true true in the Arabian Peninsula, which until the discovery of oil had been a sparsely populated desert. Today, about 80% of the world's readily accessible oil reserves are located in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the U.S. are the three largest producers. Finally, as we always do, let's look at what was happening in the world's biggest nation. The Chinese Empire was continuing its decline as Europeans continued their presence in assigned trading ports, divvying up Chinese territory into spheres of influence, where commerce and Christian missionary activity was controlled by a particular European power in each one. By the 1890s, however, China was also facing a rapidly industrializing Japanese empire. In less than 30 years, the Japanese were able to reconstruct their government, begin industrial activity, and build up their military through a universal draft and by building the latest weapons and ship technologies. However, the Japanese home islands lack deposits of key industrial materials like coal, iron, and oil. So to acquire guaranteed supplies of these resources and to acquire new markets, the Japanese government began to play the imperial game following the rules that had been established by the Europeans. Like the British in India and China, Japanese commerce claimed their own sphere of influence in Chinese territories, and it claimed sovereignty over tributary states. The brief Sino-Japanese War in 1895 ended with the Qing Empire granting the Ryukyu Islands to um, Japan as well as Taiwan, and ceding trading rights in Korea and Manchuria. At the end of the 19th century, a final conflict with the West would pave the way for radical change and the end of the Qing Empire in China. The Boxer Rebellion from 1899 to 1901 was an anti-colonial and anti-Christian revolt led by martial artists who called themselves the righteous fists, who were called boxers by Westerners. The boxers, believing that they were actually impervious to foreign weapons, marched into Beijing intending to help the imperial government exterminate all the foreigners. An eight-nation alliance, including the European nations, the U.S., and Japan, sent 20,000 troops to fight the boxers. The foreign soldiers freed the legations that were besieged in the capital, uh, the foreign settlements, uh, and they also looted Beijing and the surrounding countryside and summarily executed anyone who was suspected of being a boxer. The Qing government agreed to pay an indemnity of 450 million tiles of silver to the Allies, which is a sum worth about $10 billion today the abject state of the Qing dynasty and the increasing regional power of Japan set the scene for China to become a battlefield for territorial conflicts between Russia and Japan and the United States. The U.S. acquired the Philippine Islands and, from Spain after the 1898 war, and it immediately began projecting its own political and commercial power into East Asia. It had come late to the imperial game in China, so the U.S., concentrated on limiting existing spheres of influence and uh, preventing new ones from being imposed by either Russia or Japan. So U.S. diplomats advocated what they called an open-door policy in China um, and tried to prevent the um, Qing from limiting any commercial activity with outside powers. In 1900, Russia occupied Manchuria and came into conflict with Japanese interests on the Korean Peninsula, which led to the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. After Japanese naval ships sank the main battleships of Russia's Pacific Fleet in the Battle of Port Arthur and held off the Russian army, the world began to wake up to the power of an organized and industrialized Japan which forced Europeans and the Americans to consider the Japanese empire as an equal. Uh, While it inspired non-European colonized peoples that maybe the Europeans were not always invincible in wars. From the Russian side, however, defeat by the Japanese on the battlefield and on the high seas was not only humiliating, but it highlighted, once again, the ineffectiveness of this Tsarist regime. At the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg in January 1905, a major protest against the inept government, although ironically it supported the Tsar itself, um, ended when the palace guard fired on a peaceful demonstration, killing hundreds of people. This bloody Sunday increased demands for reform, uh, including widespread support for A parliamentary monarch. In the meantime, the Tsar sent most of the Russian Baltic fleet to try to retake Port Arthur from the Japanese. Uh, Two-thirds of the ships were sunk by the Japanese combined fleet in the Battle of Tsushima in May of 1905. And then in October of 1905, Tsar Nicholas II agreed to the formation of an elected parliament, the Duma, and the establishment of a constitutional monarchy. However, he soon reneged and decided not to grant full oversight powers to this new legislature, preferring to maintain himself as an absolute monarch. And we'll see how that works out as we move forward. The Russo-Japanese War also once again highlighted the extent that the Qing government in China was just not considered a factor in any international relations. Even though the war was concerning Chinese territory and fought on Chinese territory, Chinese armies weren't even seriously involved in the fighting. Nor were Chinese negotiators present at the Treaty of Portsmouth when American President Teddy Roosevelt brought the Japanese and the Russians together in New Hampshire to sign a treaty of peace. By that time, the Qing Empire was devolving into a series of warlord-controlled regions. Uh, Palace intrigues in the Forbidden City in Beijing had led to effective power being wielded by the Dowager Empress Sisi for nearly five decades until her death in 1908. At times, she embraced gradual reforms um, of the government and the military, and she periodically protested European and Japanese incursions, but she was realistic enough to know her limits. Uh, When she died in 1908, more conservative forces took over and installed the five-year-old Prince Puyi as emperor. Um, And this was the beginning of the end, really wasn't long before modernizing forces overthrew this decadent imperial system. Uh, And the most inspirational leader of these modernizers was Sun Yat-sen. He he was born in 1866, and then as a boy moved to the then independent kingdom of Hawaii, uh, where an older brother of his owned a farm, to uh, complete his uh, secondary education at a U.S. missionary high school. Uh, Sun then went on to study medicine in Hong Kong Hong Kong, and began advocating uh, for the end of the Qing dynasty uh, and the establishment of a Chinese republic. Uh, because he opposed the Qing, uh, Sun lived in exile in first Hawaii, then Japan and Malaysia. Uh, and from those uh, places, he was able to form an alliance that would ultimately end the Qing regime in the Xinhai Revolution in 1911 and Sun Yat-sen would be declared and elected the first president of the Republic of China. So we will follow that story further in the future, but that is all for now. So I hope that was helpful to you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again next time.